But hey, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles. Go ahead and open them up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. While you're turning there, if you're a first-time guest, my name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I don't always get to preach. But when I do, I, I preach the Bible. Uh, that was a, that's a commercial joke. But uh, yeah, open up to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going we're gonna to read the first three verses there. And you want to keep that Bible open because if I'm doing my job right, my sermon won't make sense without it. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Amen. All right, we're going to come back to that, but I wanted to go ahead and read it to you so it would be in the back of your mind. But uh, have you all been watching the Olympics? It's the Winter Olympics. I don't know. I don't think the Winter Olympics are as popular as the Summer Games, but I saw you back there, Miss Joyce. You're watching the Olympics, huh? I've not been watching it, I'll be honest, just a confession time. But I've been, I've been trying to follow it on the news just to try to, you know, stay up to date. And, and really, I've been, I'm drawing on my experience of past games to really make this introduction. But, you know, the Olympics are pretty amazing. Uh, from the opening ceremony to the final ceremony, the closing ceremony, I mean, the pageantry of the Olympics is just absolutely incredible. They just pull out all the stops. They spend millions and millions of dollars to make the Olympic Games a success and beautiful at that. But the real amazing part of the Olympics are the athletes. They are just incredible. I mean, you think about the talent that God has given them in their sports. I mean, the people who do Olympic curling are more gifted and talented at curling than most of us are at the normal sports we play, right? And curling is not a normal sport, and they are super talented at it, you know? And I remember, uh, I was in high school when Michael Phelps first came on the scene, the swimmer, Michael Phelps, and they would talk about this, this kid and just how talented he was. And they even talked about his anatomy. And they say his, his arms are too long for his body. And we have normal proportioned limbs, most of us. But Michael Phelps had, that was, a, that was also sort of a, a joke as well. But Michael Phelps has long arms, he, you know, that like go really far. And, and I found an article that was written in 2014, and this was the headline. The man who was built to be a swimmer. Right? He, he, it's not just the talent he has, but even his anatomy makes him the type of swimmer that you and I only dream of being. He is just set apart. He's got incredible talent. And all the Olympians do. They all have incredible talent in their sport. But beyond the talent they have, they have worked harder than anybody else at their sport. Right? I mean, you really think about what these people go through. They, they make sacrifices that we would never dream of making. They give up their normal lives. In some cases, even leaving their families to live and train at the Olympic Academy for their sport. I mean, they don't have the luxury of taking a day off. They don't have the luxury of a cheat day on their diet. If they give up on their training regimen, somebody else is there ready to take their place on the Olympic team. They are gifted and talented but they work their tails off trying to become an Olympian. And at the end of the day, the games really, you know, they're a useful example of something to, you know, hold ourselves against and say, well, 
what am I doing that requires that amount of devotion and sacrifice? You know, we think about the sacrifice they make, and it's pretty clear. They do it all for the gold, right? The moment where they're standing on the highest podium, they've got the gold medal around them, the, the flag draped over their back, they lower the American flag, and the, the anthem is playing. That makes it all worth it. Not eating pizza or donuts, not seeing their friends and family, these teenagers on these like gymnastics teams, not going to prom, you know, not having the normal things that you guys enjoy. They don't have that. They're willing to do it because the reward is more valuable to them. And in our text that we just read, I mean, we see that we're called to run a race with endurance. We're called to run a race with endurance. Now, it's, it's not an Olympic race. They're not doing those. They're doing like cross-country ski races. Uh, you have to wait two more years for the actual running races. But, but you understand the point, right? That the Olympians give up everything in order to strive toward the goal of wearing that gold medal and hearing their anthem playing. They're willing to give it all up for that moment. And, and this morning, our, our passage tells us that that's the way we ought to be in pursuing God. That our relationship with him is a race that we're called to run with endurance. So, you know, the Olympic Games, they really give us an opportunity to examine our lives and ask, are we doing that? Are we running our race with endurance? But even at that, the Olympic athletes are the top of the top, the creme de la creme in their chosen sport, right? But even the Olympians don't all win the gold. I actually, I looked it up. I didn't make it in the final thing. But you should look up this afternoon the odds of becoming a gold medalist in, for example, the 100-meter sprint. Look up the odds of becoming a gold medalist. They are astronomically low. You are never going to be an Olympic gold medalist. Just (laughs) be whatever you, you you can be whatever you want, but you're probably not going to be that, okay? And, And most of the Olympians They may make it to their national team. They may make it to the actual Olympic Games, but most of them don't receive the gold medal. There's only one gold medal winner. So they're useful in drawing our attention to the way we ought to run with endurance, but I want to tell you, hey, don't be like them because even the best Olympians sometimes miss the mark. Even Michael Phelps doesn't have a perfect streak of all gold medals, right? He uh, won bronze and won silver. So even the best Olympians don't always reach their mark. And guys, Failure for us is not an option. We don't have the luxury of saying, well, I may not get gold, but at least I'm going to get silver, right? This is a winner-takes-all event, so run with endurance. And in that, we don't have to just look to the Olympians, but we look to the one who ran his race with endurance and finished the task that he was given. And, of course, we're talking about Jesus, the one that the author says, endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He won. He is the ultimate Olympic gold medalist. So this morning we're going to look at him because over the past few weeks we have been learning what it means to love, live, and lead like Jesus. We we began by hearing the call that Jesus gives us. It says this, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus invites us all to become his disciples, and in so doing, he invites us to apprentice our whole lives to him, to uh, fulfill what Paul says in Romans 8, 29, to become conformed to Jesus in every way so that we will bear the spitting image of our elder brother. We've been using this phrase to sort of capture what this all looks like, and and you can even say it with me. It's going to be up here. You want to say it? 
The aim of my life is to be like Christ. This is what the whole thing is about. We're supposed to be like Jesus in every way. And so this, this process of conformity begins by learning to love like Jesus loved. And so the past few weeks we've been spending time talking about what that love looks like. Of course, it's the same love that he experienced with his Father and, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. It's this wonderful Trinitarian love, this give and take to one another. But at the same time, it's characterized by three basic attitudes. The first is compassion. The love that Jesus calls us to have is a compassionate love, where we have our hearts moved by the things that move Jesus' hearts, and then we uh, respond with the appropriate resources. We want to be compassionate. right? But it's also characterized by forgiveness and forbearance, which we saw last week. Remember to trust God with the outcome and to love anyway. So we love, right? That's what we're called to do. We're called to love like Jesus loved. But we're also called to live like he lived. And that's where we're going to begin today. We're going to begin to learn what it means to live like Jesus lived. And conveniently, the two things, the loving like Jesus loved and the living like Jesus lived, are connected. Because Jesus himself, in, in Luke chapter 10, uh, agreed that the entire law, which is, if you didn't know, God's standard of right living, God's ethical standard, is summed up with two phrases, two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So listen, it's really simple. If you want to live like Jesus lived, perfectly fulfill the law, which is summarized in these two statements. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we could just give up preaching the next few weeks and just say, hey, we get it. Let's just love each other, and we'll live like Jesus lived. I mean, it really does seem... That obvious. I mean, if I decided tomorrow that every decision I'm going to make is going to be motivated by my love for God and my love for my neighbor, then I wouldn't need any more instruction. If I did that perfectly, I would live like Jesus lived, because that's exactly what he did. Everything he did was motivated by that love. But there's also this strand of teaching in the New Testament that came in at the very end of the passage we read. And, and listen to it, see if you hear it. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Did you catch that? Uh, did you catch that? Don't grow weary. Look at it here um, in Second Thessalonians. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. And in Galatians 6, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. See, all the, the love that we've been talking about the past couple weeks, this, this compassionate love that breaks for the disoriented, and uh, this forgiveness and forbearance that's directed towards uh, our enemies, all this stuff is exhausting. It's, it, it can tire us out. And so we're told not to grow weary in three different places. Do not grow weary, do not grow weary, do not grow weary. And the reality of it is, is that many of us would probably someday say, hey, I know that to live like Jesus means that all my, everything I do needs to be motivated by love. But just once, just once, I'd like to really tell this person what I think. I'd like for really, just this once, just, you know, I'll go back to loving them tomorrow. But today, I want to tell them what they are, you know. And, and we really do. We really wish we could do that. And, and I just want to be honest with you that it's nice to open up the Bible and see that uh, God knew I was going to be tempted to do that. And, and warned me, hey, don't grow weary in doing good. Because here's the thing. When it comes to living like Jesus, God is after faithfulness and obedience over the long haul. 
And that's enabled by spiritual endurance, and it's motivated by the pursuit of joy. And that's really what I want us to look at this morning is, okay, to live like Jesus means to be faithful to, G- to God every day. I mean, we, we see it in Jesus' own life. When he was 12 years old, he's, he's a little boy, uh, you know, entering into what it means to be a man. And his mom and dad can't find him, and, and they go looking in the temple, and of course, there he is. And when they find him, they say, what are you doing here? And the newer translations say, hey, didn't you know I was going to be in my father's house? But they do that because the Greek's ambiguous, and the older translations tell us this, don't you know that I'm supposed to be up to my father's business? So from his earliest days, Jesus had a desire to be in his father's house and to be about his father's work. His earliest, his earliest days, I mean, some of the earliest recorded stories we have of him, he's about his father's business. And then all the way at the end of his life, at the end of his life, in John 17, he prays to his father and says, listen, I've glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So day in and day out, never taking a break, never feeling the urge to just let somebody have it, Jesus was faithful to God's will for him. And so living like Jesus, apprenticing ourselves to him, means that we need to be faithful like he was faithful, day in and day out. So every day, no matter the cost, God is after my faithful obedience over the long haul. And it's enabled by endurance and motivated by joy. So that's what we're going to look at. And so here, I want us to to dive right in, back to our text this morning. I want to look at it right here. He says, listen, run your race with endurance. Run your race with endurance. Endurance. So by the point in this letter, if you're not familiar with the letter to the Hebrews, the author has already been sort of writing a a sermon in letter form. And by chapter 12, he's already talked about how Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial systems. He's offered a once-for-all sacrifice that paves the way for right relationship with God. He talks about how worship that's offered through the Spirit to the Lord Jesus is better than the worship that's offered in the temple. He talks about how Jesus is better than everything. But the reality of the situation is he's also deeply concerned about the people he's writing to. They're facing incredible pressure, pressure that probably you and I have never experienced. I mean, the the letter is called the letter to the Hebrews. And so these people are Jewish Christians who have essentially turned their back on their family and friends in order to worship Jesus and leave a life in Judaism. They've they've converted from a religion to another. by By this point, it's that stark. They've left behind their old way of living and they're living in faithful worship to Jesus. And so he's, he's concerned over and over and over. He asks this question, how are you guys going to finish your race? See, in, in chapter four, he tells them that they need to make every effort to enter God's everlasting rest. In chapter six, he tells them they need to remain diligent until the end. There's a possibility that some of them, the pressures of life, the tension they were feeling with their family, the cost of following Jesus, and in the, at the end of the day, it was going to be too high, and they were going to walk away from the faith completely. So he tells them, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and the weight of sin which clings so closely and run our race with endurance. That's the call, to run the race with endurance. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is that a faithful life is a marathon that requires endurance. If they're going to make it, if they're going to finish the race that God's called them to run, if they're going to avoid the temptation to call it in and just say, hey, I'm, I'm listen, pain in my side's too much, I can't run another step. If they're not going to turn back, it's going to be because they learn to live and run with endurance. Now, this idea of endurance is really common in the ancient world. In fact, uh, Socrates said that, that uh, endurance is essential for warfare. 
Because if a soldier had enough endurance, he could allow the enemy to expend all his energy so that once he was tired out, the soldier would have a clear path to victory. So for that, it was also important in, in athletic imagery. And one of the things I've been thinking about, have y'all ever arm wrestled? Have you, you've, everybody has arm wrestled. It is the universal sport. It's the greatest sport. And it's not in the Olympics. You know, what is up? But no, you, so you're arm wrestling with somebody and you put your elbow on the table and they put their hand in yours and you, you know, you go back and forth. But the strategy to arm wrestling is if you just can maintain that position, let the other person try and try and try. But if you can just lock your arm in, let them tie themselves out. Eventually, they're going to be like, oh, and you can just, <laughs> and win. That's endurance. That's holding out and bearing up under pressure until another person is tired, and then you can swoop in for the kill. Right? That is endurance. That's the endurance Socrates talked about. Aristotle made it one of the key virtues to, to living a virtuous life, to being a virtuous citizen in the, in the city. He said you had to have endurance because it enabled you to do the right thing for the sake of beauty even when it hurt. You did the right thing even when it hurt. You had to have the endurance necessary to do the right thing even when it hurt. And so in the Old Testament, this, this word, they, they use this same word endurance to translate some, some ideas in the Old Testament that you and I are very familiar with. It's things we read in the Psalms week after week where the psalmist will say something, oh Lord, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you. Right? And the idea of waiting is that there are that my enemies, they surround me. They're exulting over me. Right? But at the end of the day, Lord, I know that you will be faithful to your promise to your people, and you will show up. Right? And that ability to wait through the midst of you know, people, enemies exulting over you, and people out to get you, plotting for your demise, that ability to pursue God and wait for him is endurance. And so the New Testament sort of takes these ideas and blends them together. And, and hear how the Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5. We can rejoice in our afflictions... Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. See, this is the key. Endurance enables us to face life's struggles with confidence in God. We don't have to mail it in. We don't have to give up the fight. We can maintain hope in him knowing that he's going to show up. And I think, when you think about it, this is the characteristic that defines Jesus' life. Let me run through a, a few of the things he faced. We've already talked about it a little bit. But Jesus endured 40 days of fasting in the wilderness that culminated in a face-to-face -face temptation by the king of darkness himself, Satan. All right? he, he resisted the urge to turn a, piece of, a rock into a piece of bread. He resisted all those temptations. He endured Right? He endured the rejection of his own family and community when his preaching was found too radical and offensive. Remember, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. He endured the plotting, false accusations, and personal animus of the religious elite in Jerusalem. He endured the misguided rebuke of his disciples who swore he'd never die. He endured the hostility of Roman guards who mocked him, spit in his face, plucked the hair from his beard, taunted him, and tortured him. In short, like the author says, he endured such hostility from sinners against himself. He endured the cross and despised the shame. You know, what, what accounts for that in his life except endurance? An ability to not give in when fallen humanity and the spiritual forces of darkness, when they threw everything they had at him, he didn't cave under the pressure. He 
bore up underneath it. He held out. He remained faithful to what God had called him to do. And so in our own lives, we're supposed to look to him. The author tells us twice, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross. And then again in verse 3, we're supposed to look to him and find some kind of encouragement in our own struggles. He didn't shrink back. He bore up under pressure, and we're called to do the same. We're called to endure like Jesus endured, to trust him in every moment, faithful to the end. You know, we are. We're like the runner. Okay, and I want you to envision this with me. Do any of you run? I know there's some of us, we obviously show the world we do not run. But uh, others of us do run. And you know, even those of us who, who are out of shape and can't run very far, you know there's this, there's this point where you're starting out and you've got your tunes in your ears and you're, you're jogging and you're feeling good. You're like, I could take on the world. I could take on the world. And then like 100 meters in, you like have that ache in your side and you're like, you feel the pain and you feel the shortness of breath. And all of a sudden you feel how how terrible your running shoes are, and every step is the concrete pounding against your feet, and it just hurts so bad, and you start to think, man, I'm not even really running that far anyway. I'm not even running that fast. What good is this doing? And everything inside of you tells you, hey, just, just you can just walk. Just do the run-walk thing. Run a little bit, walk a little bit. It's okay. Do the run-walk thing. Everything inside of your body is telling you, hey, it's okay. Slow down. You're going to be all right. And in life, that is exactly where we get with God. That we're doing okay, we wake up in the morning and we have our quiet time where we pray and then read our Bible and we feel, man, I can take on the day. I've got it. I've got it. I'm going to honor Jesus today with my life. And you get to work and, you know, somebody got the last bit of coffee and didn't start up a new pot. That used to always happen to me when I worked at a pool store. We had a, a pot of coffee. It wasn't like one of these instant things. And somebody would always drain it and not start a new pot. So you'd get there, and you're, like, ready to start your day, and you go to the coffee pot, and you're, like, pour coffee in, and there's no coffee there. And you're, like, ah, these people, these people. And so it's the coffee, and then it's the customers, and then it's the coworkers, and everything is conspiring against you to say, hey, you can honor Jesus tomorrow. Today's about you, baby. You need to look out for you. That is life. And the author of the Hebrews is telling them, don't give in. You can make it another step. You can run your race with endurance. You've you got to bear up underneath the weight of life. You've got to hold out, not give in. Run with endurance. But why? Really why? I mean, the, the Olympic athlete has the gold medal as their motivation. It's held out out here. Hey, don't eat pizza. Do your workout every day. Don't hang out with your friends. Give your life to this Olympic thing, and in four years, you can win the gold. But what about Jesus? He had endurance, but why? Why? What motivated him? And in verse 2, we see it. It says, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the, the second thing I want you to see, a faithful life is motivated by the pursuit of joy. Okay? Are you, are you the type of person that writes things down? If you are, this is a good thing to write down because I've wrestled with this all week. I've tried to, to really wrap my mind around this, and I want some of you deep theologians to, to process it with me, Okay? How is it possible that there was something such as joy, which joy is a deep and abiding satisfaction and pleasure found in God. So deep and abiding satisfaction and pleasure found in God. How is it possible that there is any way that joy existed as something that lay beyond Jesus, was something that he was striving to attain? How did he not have joy? How was joy something that was in front of him and something that he was striving to? to get. 
You know, how, how did it lay before him? And so I, I've wrestled with it. I really have. It's, it, I asked my dad. I said, hey, Dad, what's your thoughts? I, call, I phoned a friend. You know, I called all my buddies. I'm like, help me understand. What is this joy that's laying in front of Jesus and is something that he's striving to attain? He doesn't have it now, but if he'll run his race with endurance, he'll gain it. And here's what I think. There's two things. I think Jesus sought the joy that's found in God's presence. Right? Jesus sought the joy that's found in God's presence. So while on earth, you know, Jesus did experience perfect fellowship with his heavenly Father by the work of the Holy Spirit. He never existed outside of that perfect fellowship. He talks about it in John 15, that he remained in his Father's love as he carried out his Father's commandments. And so he extends to us the same offer. Hey, remain in my teaching, and you'll remain in my love. So Jesus had this wonderful fellowship, this very real presence of God with him at all times. And yet at the same time, we do recognize that there is a difference in the experience of fellowship uh, that he had on earth than what he had in heaven. And this is what I mean. In Philippians chapter 2, remember, Paul says that Jesus exchanged equality with God, right? He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. So the experience that Jesus had of fellowship with his Father, the joy that he had on a day-to-day basis was different from him while he was in, on earth in human flesh than what he had before he took on human flesh and was in the presence of his Father for all eternity. And I know that's difficult, but here, let me, let me explain it to you. This is what he says. This is his prayer in John 17 again. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So, Every day, Jesus is motivated by his love for his Father in order to obey him and thus glorify him on earth. And yet he realized that if he would continue, if he would complete the work that God had given him to do, he would experience a different sense of glory, the same glory he had before the world existed. So Paul says this, so we'll look at Philippians 2, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So follow me. Jesus experiences the glory that he had before the world existed now by virtue of his obedient life and death on the cross. For this reason, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus' obedience, his life of faithfulness, remember, we're supposed to be faithful as he is faithful. His life of obedience led him to experience more of the glory that he had before the world existed now. So that's important because you'll notice up here. Oh, I didn't put it up there. Notice this, all right? Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol, lest you will not abandon me to the grave. But you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Now in Acts 13, the Apostle Peter applies Psalm 16 to Jesus. The fact that his body never saw decay, but God raised him up three days after his death with a glorified resurrection body. Right? So he did not allow his Holy One to see decay. So 
Psalm 16 is already applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And here's my suggestion. That the joy that lay before Jesus was the joy that he would experience in the Father's presence. The, the joy prophesied about here in Psalm 16. The joy that is abundant in the presence of God. right? Because at your right hand are eternal pleasures. And, and I think, and I'm, this is speculative a little bit, because I couldn't find anybody really that you know, is making this same point, but I'm probably going to write it someday. Okay, So I'm going to be the guy who makes this point. All right, and this is the point. The author of the Hebrews says, hey, Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, where there are eternal pleasures forevermore. At your right hand are eternal pleasures forevermore. And I believe with my whole heart that the thing that motivated Jesus every day was to be in his Father's presence and experience that abundant joy. That he was joyful every day as he walked with God, as he had this experience of the tangible, very real love of God in his life. He had joy, and it's available for you and me too right now. But it does not compare to the abundant and perfect joy that exists for all of us who pursue God day after day and finally enter into his presence for all eternity. That joy will blow the joy we experience here out of the water. And that's what motivated him. I want to know that joy, the joy that I'll find when I see my father face to face again. That's what motivated him every day. But that's not all. Because he also sought the joy that's found in participating in God's work. And for that, we're going to go to John chapter 4, and we really don't have time to dig into this story deeply. It's, a, it's familiar to most of us, the story of Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. But if, if you don't remember it, let me just give you the, the brief outline. That Samaritans and Jews despised each other. They had like centuries-long rifts that caused them to see each other with a lot of skepticism and animosity. And so about the middle of the day, Jesus is passing through Samaria, and he comes to a village called Sychar, and he sits down at a well. He's, the, the Bible says he became weary, okay, he became weary from his journey. And so he sat down and sent his disciples into the town to find some food. And while he's there, he ends up getting into a spiritual conversation with this Samaritan woman. And after he told her everything she ever did, she had sort of a, a bad past. He told her everything. She became convinced that he was the long-awaited Savior. And so she ran back into the town to tell everybody that she'd found the Messiah. Right, and about that time, his disciples show back up. Okay? And I want to let you hear their conversation. Right, so this is John chapter 4, verse 31. Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? And get this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say... There's still four months, and then comes the harvest. Well, listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, because they're ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. I have food that you don't even know about. My food is doing the will of him who sent me. Jesus grew weary sat down at a well to regain his strength and sent his disciples into town to get some food. So they show back up thinking, oh, our master is weary, our teacher is weary, we need to give him this food so he can re-strengthen himself and, and make it the rest of the way. And he's saying, listen, while you guys were gone, God ended up satisfying me with something that's far deeper than what you've got in your baskets. He let me in on his activity. He let me see where he was at work. He gave me an unplanned encounter and boys, I'm full. I don't need anything. I'm fine. 
I just got satisfied in a way that you can't even imagine. And listen, the payoff is this. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. So that the one who sows the seeds and the one who reaps the harvest can experience this shared joy of seeing what God is doing. You know, I read one time that maybe, you know, in the Middle East, they often wear um, white because it reflects the heat of the sun. And men typically wear, like, white uh, cloths over their head and tie it down. And this lady, she runs into Sychar, and she goes to the people of the village. She says, listen, listen, I've met the Christ. He told me everything I ever did. Come and, come and see. And so the people, you know, hearing this crazy lady who has a pretty sordid past, overwhelmed with so much joy, they, they drop what they're doing and they come out there. And, and perhaps Jesus says, hey, look, the fields are white with harvest. And, and maybe where he sits on this hill with this well. He's pointing out to the, to the men of the village with their white cloths on their head. And he's pointed them. The fields are white with harvest. It satisfied him to be involved in his father's activity. To see people coming to experience the bread of heaven come down. A bread that you eat of and never hunger again. To taste water that satisfies unlike anything else on earth. There is deep and everlasting joy for those of us who are willing to put aside the cares and concerns of our life and join up with God's activity. You know this. You've, you're, you're probably a volunteer in some capacity around here maybe. And you sometimes, maybe it's with kids or maybe with its, its ornery adults, and you sometimes sort of get perturbed by our attitudes towards you. You know, we had a bad day, and so we walk in, and you try to greet us friendly, and we're, you know, not having it. We're in our own thing. And so, you know, you feel like, hey, do I have to love these people like this, or can I just, you know, tell these kids what I really think about them? But then, you know, you, you experience what the Apostle John talks about in Third John, where he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. To see that there is a joy that comes from serving the Lord, being involved in his activity that is unmatched by anything else on earth. To, to get to go with some teenagers to a conference with 4,000 other teenagers from around Houston and to, to see kids like down in the front in like a sanctified mosh pit, raising their hands, jumping around, and hearing them sing words that are amazing. Like we sang this song, it's just beautiful. It says, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. And, you know, to be honest, I'm, I get super worn out sometimes being around people. I find it a little bit taxing sometimes to keep my front up and to always remember who God's called me to be and to show love in every way. And I retreated to my hotel room that night and just relaxed, and, you know, it was wonderful. But I left that weekend more energized, more full of joy than I have been in a very long time because I saw God at work in their lives. And a faithful life, one that's marked by endurance when times get tough, has to be motivated by the pursuit of joy. We can't do it on our own. We can't just say every day, I'm going to wake up and just be me and try to do my thing and be faithful to God. we got to be serving, loving other people, giving our lives away to join God in his mission. You know, that's what Jesus calls us to. That's what he calls us to. So listen, here's the, here's the deal. 
When the Olympic hopeful gets that gold medal lodged firmly in their mind, when it becomes worth more to them than eating a pizza or going to prom or going out with their friends and watching a movie, when it becomes more valuable than anything else in the world, there's no stopping them. They give their lives away to it. And so I hope you see that this is the life God is calling us to live. It's the life Jesus himself lived. Nothing on earth compared to the joy he knew he would experience in his Father's presence and in doing his Father's work. Nothing. And because of that, he was willing to suffer some terrible stuff, stuff you and I wouldn't even dream of having to endure. So it's the life he's calling us to live. And he's honest about it. This is the key, you know. Endurance is sort of like the opposite of weariness. If weariness is that natural result of running hard over a long distance that we naturally get tired, our body starts breaking down, then spiritual weariness is the natural result of living life in a fallen world. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. They'll hand you over to be persecuted, and they'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will be multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Listen, Jesus is honest about it. Life with him will be tough. It'll be tough. You know, and you think about it. What would motivate somebody to pursue a faithful life if they have to face persecution, death, hatred, abandonment, betrayal, intentional deception, lawlessness, and lovelessness to get there? What, what could motivate a person? Well, I, I think it's this. This is from Jesus' parable of the talents, Matthew 25, verse 13. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And here's the kicker. Share your master's joy. Share your master's joy. This is the life he's called us to live, a life motivated by a pursuit of joy. So that brings us to our final point, guys. The third thing, a faithful life is my calling in Christ. Can I invite you to to personalize that with me and say it out loud? A faithful life is my calling in Christ. See, we are called to run our race with endurance. God is after faithfulness and obedience over the long haul. That's enabled by spiritual endurance and motivated by the pursuit of joy. This is the life we've been called to live. And so here's the deal. If, if we find ourselves not running with endurance, then we're not living like Jesus lived. All right? If we find ourselves Uh, not resisting temptation, not bearing up under the pressure of life, not holding out when things get tough, then we're not living like he lived. And and the Apostle John says, anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. So here's the deal. If we're not exhibiting the same spiritual endurance in our life that Jesus exhibited in his, we are not living like Jesus lived, no matter what we want to tell ourselves. Right? So we can do the external, you know, we can go through the motions, put the face on, we can act the way we're supposed to act. But if we're not experiencing this internal endurance against temptation and under the pressures of life, then we're not living like Jesus lived. And so I want to invite you to, to bow your head and close your eyes with me because I've got two questions I want you to think about. And I think you need to sort of block out some noise. So I want you to do that. Bow your head and close your eyes. And I want want you to ask these two questions of yourself. I'm not asking you them. 
I want you to ask them of yourself. And here's the first one. What race am I running? What race am I running? Is it the race of a faithful life lived in obedience to God like like Jesus did? Or is it some other race? We've got these phrases in society. We've got the rat race, which is a fiercely competitive struggle in the pursuit of wealth and power. There's the race to the bottom, the willingness to day after day lower our standards in order to attain some fleeting good. Maybe it's the affirmation of a peer group, a sense of belonging, a sense of superiority or the gratification of some sort of desire. And of course, there's the race against time. Trying to fit as many pleasures or experiences into the, the fleeting moments of life that we don't have much time left, so we better fit in as much as we can. What race am I running? And here's the second one What is my prize? What is my prize? What is the greatest good I can imagine in my life? What would I give up everything to have? Is it the joy found in God's presence? The joy that comes from giving yourself away for His purposes? Or would you give just about anything to have the right circle of friends? financial security, the perfect marriage, the perfect family, the perfect figure. What is your prize? Now look at me up here. Aren't those other races exhausting? You know, we we give ourselves to them. We think that the prize they offer is going to satisfy us but they turn out to be just treadmills, endlessly running, endlessly running, never attaining what they promise. And so I wanna remind you while you're looking at me, there's a better race waiting for you. Don't run the races that don't get you anywhere. Run the race with endurance. And hear one more time Jesus' words. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray.